Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Isn't that how most of our souls are, so prone to wander? And even in the text we'll see today in Matthew, or in Mark 14, we're going to see the disciples, they didn't just wander, they scatter. They head for the hills fast when times get tough. We are so prone to wander, and you just thank the Lord Jesus for his great mercy and grace that even though we're prone to wander, he, he never lets any of us get away. None can snatch us from his hand. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and this really, these last several chapters are the climax of the book of Mark. We see his death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in these chapters. <coughs> we see the actions of Jesus' friends and his enemies in his last days before he is crucified and rises from the grave. And we've seen various reactions of people. Some worship him, don't they? Like Mary came and broke, the, broke open the costly oil and anointed him with it and worshiped him. And others seek to kill him. His enemies are plotting to kill him. Judas, one of his Twelve disciples betrays him, and as I just mentioned, all will scatter and leave him. It's amazing to see and important to note that Jesus is in complete control of all that happens. I don't want us to lose sight of that. Jesus is in complete control of all the events that are taking place in these texts, and we're going to see that again today as we work through the text together. He's not surprised one bit that he will die on the cross, be buried, rise from the dead, that his disciples will scatter, one will betray him. None of this surprises him at all. He's not alarmed by it one bit. And all the events of his death, burial, and resurrection happen exactly, exactly according to his plan. And last week we saw Mary's amazing act of love and worship to Jesus in anointing him for his burial. We saw him observe the Passover with his disciples, and in so doing, he changed the symbolism of the elements to show how the bread represents his body broken for us, and the fruit of the vine represents his blood of the covenant poured out for us. His body was broken and his blood poured out so that by faith in Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. And this he made clear at the last Passover meal with his disciples. And in the remainder of chapter 14, Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas, arrested, convicted, and condemned to die by the council of the chief priests. There's a strong theme of abandonment in the remainder of the chapter. We're going to see basically everyone scatters, everyone leaves Jesus alone, even those who so strongly say they will stand with him even to death. He's abandoned by all. He was abandoned by denial of Peter, by indifference of Peter as he falls asleep in the garden. We're going to see that. Peter, James, and John all fall asleep when he's asking them to watch and pray. They're kind of indifferent to what's about to happen and what's going on. He's abandoned by the betrayal of Judas Iscariot and by the remainder of the disciples fleeing when he's been taken into custody. And all of these things take place so that the scriptures will be fulfilled just as they were written. So let's start in Matthew chapter 14, start at verse 26. 
He's just observed the Passover meal with his disciples, his last supper with them. And when they had sung a hymn, verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So let's pause for a minute and just dig into this. At verse 26, they sing a hymn together, likely one of the praise psalms from Psalm 113 to 118. These are known as the, the praise psalms. Then they go to the Mount of Olives together. It was their custom to go to the Mount of Olives and pray after they ate supper together. And Jesus kept that custom on purpose. Judas Iscariot knew that custom. He knew that habit. And so both Jesus and Judas knew that this is where they would be on that night. So this wasn't just a coincidence. Jesus meant to be there because he, know that's where Judah, he knew that's where Judas would come and try to find him. So they're on the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7 to tell them exactly what was about to happen. So notice the compassion and grace of our Lord. He doesn't leave them surprised. He tells them exactly what's going to happen, and he's quoting scripture as he does it. He knows they will be unfaithful, and they will fall away when he is arrested. It's written in the scriptures, and therefore it must be fulfilled. Jesus is the good shepherd who God struck down for the salvation of the world. And when he did, the sheep scattered. We saw last time how Jesus was fulfilling the scripture written in Zechariah 9 through 14. There's a whole block of text there in Zechariah 9, 14, describing Messiah to come. And Jesus is fulfilling that scripture. And we looked into that last time. We saw that Jesus is the king who arrived mounted on a donkey. You'll see that in Zechariah. We'll see that Jesus is the one who is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and the money used to buy the potter's field. That's also mentioned in Zechariah. We'll see that Jesus is the one that they looked on when he was pierced. That's also in Zechariah 12. And we'll see that he is the shepherd who is struck down and the sheep scattered. And even though he is the shepherd that struck down and the sheep scattered, a day is coming soon when God will reaffirm and reestablish his covenant relation with his people. We see that in Zechariah 13. And will subdue the nations that oppress Israel so that the Lord will become king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That's Zechariah 14. And Jesus is perfectly playing out, fulfilling every one of these prophecies. And it's the impending death of Jesus that shows this moment is now at hand. But death is not the end. Jesus will rise again. Look at verse 28. He immediately follows the prediction that he will be struck down and they will, be, they will scatter. He immediately follows that with the prediction that he will rise again and go before them into Galilee. <clears throat> In verse 28. 
I will rise again, and I will go before you into Galilee, he says. Now, amazing that after he was killed, the disciples didn't believe that he was in Galilee waiting for them. I mean, they, just, they just continually don't get it. Uh, but he tells them even here, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be struck down. You're going to scatter, but I'm going to rise again, and I will, I will go before you into Galilee. I think their lack of faith and understanding of what's all going on is just remarkable. And sadly, you know, in many ways, we're just like them. I look in the mirror, I'm like, man, I'm just like that. In so many ways, I am so often just like them. And I love that Jesus says, I'm going before you into Galilee. He's going to meet them in the very region where their homes were and where he called them originally to himself. That was their home country in Galilee. And so he's going before them back, back home. And so he tells them this is about to happen. Now look at the response of the disciples. So Jesus says, the, the shepherd will be struck down. You will all scatter, but I'm going to rise again. I'll go before you into Galilee. He's been saying this over and over again, hasn't he? That he's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. On the third day, he will rise again. This isn't new, a new statement. He's been saying it all along. But look at verse 29. Peter doesn't accept this at all. In his usual zeal, he vehemently affirms his loyalty to Jesus, says, even though they all fall away, Jesus, I will not. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Now imagine being there with Peter as one of, his, uh, one of the disciples, and you hear this exchange going on. Even though the rest of these jokers leave you, Jesus, even though the rest of these losers fall away, not me, you know, that's kind of like the context of what you're hearing here. Even though they all fall away, I won't. No, I'll be strong. I'll never leave you. I'll stand with you to the death, he says, even if I have to die. Now, I don't know if he means for it to come across that way, but it sure does look like an attitude of superiority over his fellow disciples. At least it did to me as I was reading it. But what Peter's doing here is he's clearly showing that he really doesn't know himself very well at all. He doesn't know himself very well at all. He's so full of pride and overconfidence. And the events that follow quickly show his arrogance. Now, look at verse 30. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't just let this go. He tells Peter the plain truth. He's like, oh, really, Peter? This very night, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, is what Jesus says. Now, the cruel irony here is that Peter, the one who most strongly declares his loyalty to, to Jesus, is the one who denies him the greatest, even to the point of swearing and cursing when asked if, Jesus, if he was with Jesus. We'll see that uh, in, in later weeks. And so he's the one who stands up for the, the strongest. I will never leave you. I'll die with you. And then we're going to see when the time comes and he's tested. Boy, he fails the greatest among all of them. But he wasn't the only one who said that he would stand with Jesus no matter what. They all said the same. Right there in the text, we can see it. <coughs> they all said the same. And they all scattered and denied him, every one of them. They were swept off their feet by Peter's mighty boasts. And they must have felt that they could not very well promise less than Peter. You know, here's Peter standing up saying, you know, fight with them even he has to die. And so the, what are the rest going to do? Well, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> of course, 
Now's the time. We'll stand with you, with you, Jesus, even to the end. So they're all in, you know, puffed up and prideful about all of this. When you think about this scene, you can see a couple things here. Exchanges like this show that we don't really know ourselves like we think we do. All the disciples, they were so sure they would stand with Jesus even to the point of death. And listen, they, they actually touched him and felt him. They walked with him. They heard his voice. They saw all the miracles right before their eyes. They saw Ra Lazarus raised from the dead right before their eyes. They saw it. They heard it. They touched it. They felt it. The Apostle John writes of that in his, word, in his books. This is the one that we heard, that we touched, that we felt, that we saw. He's real. They had all of those evidences right before their eyes. Yet they denied him in his darkest hour and time of greatest need, just as the scriptures said they would. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have similar weaknesses. We really don't know our inner self the way we think we do. We, like them, are all sinners with desperately wicked, weak, and fragile hearts. But the other thing we see in this text is God knows us thoroughly. He knows our every strength and our every weakness. He saw right through Peter and the disciples, and he sees through us too. And apart from him, we can do nothing. It's by God's grace we're saved from our sinful selves, even the sins we don't have eyes to see. As David prays in Psalm 19, he says this, Who can discern his errors? Declare me from innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So we can take comfort in the words of Jesus here. We can see the deep love of God in them all. In Luke 22, which is a parallel passage, we see a little bit more of what happened in that exchange. It says this in Luke 22. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, because he knows he's going to fall, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So you see the gracious and loving words of Jesus in this time? When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he knows all about Peter. He knows very specifically, Peter, you are going to deny me. And even before the rooster crows, crows twice, just so you know that I know what's going on, Peter, the rooster's going to crow twice, and you're going to deny me three times. And it plays out exactly the way Jesus predicts. So God sees right through all of our pride and our arrogance and our boasting. He sees right through to our hearts, and he still has love and compassion on us all. And we can trust him. You can trust him. I can trust him. And he's also so, so gracious and loving to tell them, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Even before they were scattered, he told them that they would be regathered, that his death was not the end, and he continually offers them that comfort. 
This is the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, the very grace that will pardon and cleanse within. So let's remember that we're all weak and fragile people. We need the Lord, and we need each other. And we can trust in him, and he will direct our paths, and he will carry us even in the darkest hours when we desert him, <laughs> just as they're about to do. Look at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, <coughs> and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I came across this poem in my preparation by F.L. Knowles. It's called Grief and Joy, and it goes like this. It says, Joy is a partnership. Grief weeps alone. Many guests had Cana, Gethsemane, but one. Cana is where he turned the water to wine. Jesus did his first miracle. Lots of guests there at the party. But in his darkest hour at Gethsemane, there's no, there's no one there. there. He's all alone. No one even stays awake to watch and pray. What Jesus endured in Gethsemane was never experienced by anyone else. But why Gethsemane at all? Why all this suffering and difficulty? Couldn't God just have arranged it in a way that at the very entrance of the garden, Jesus would immediately have been arrested? You know, why all this struggle? Why the agony, the wrestlings, the prayers, the, the sweat that's like drops of blood? Why? Well, I think the purpose of Gethsemane is to show us that the obedience of Jesus was not forced on him against his will. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You read that in John chapter 10. And he lays it down on his own. No one takes it from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He has authority to lay it down, and he has authority to take it up again. You read that in John chapter 10. In verses 32 and 33, he takes the disciples to Gethsemane, a garden on the Mount of Olives, while he seeks time to pray. Now, the name Gethsemane literally means oil press. And we can see the great distress and pressing of Jesus' soul at this place as he forces his, as he faces his coming death. And he takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further. So he tells them, 
sit here while I go and pray. And he takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, he takes them a little bit further. They were his closest disciples, and they were the ones he took with him on the mountain when he was transfigured with Moses and Elijah, and they saw all of that, all of that glory. And so he takes them a little further, and then he goes to pray. And note here that he, he became greatly distressed and troubled, the text says. This could also be translated filled with horror and anguish. They're very strong words. This isn't just like he's feeling a little bit sad or a little bit anxious or anything like that. He's filled with horror and anguish in his soul. It's like Psalm 42, where all the waves and billows of distress come pouring over his soul. He knows what he's about to experience. Not any ordinary death. No, he's about to experience the full wrath of God for the sins of the world poured out on him in his death. This is no ordinary physical death. This is the full wrath of God for sin in the place of his people. That's what was about to come on Jesus. Now, more than ever before, he's beginning to feel that. And it's coming. That is why he speaks of sorrow to the point of death. And he bore it all alone. Look at verse 34 through 38. Here's where we find the real heart of the struggle. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So he knows that they are weak and will be tempted to sin in the events that are about to take place. He knows all that. He knows they will be tempted to strike back with force against his accusers. He knows they will be tempted to deny him and flee when he is arrested. He knows all these things. And he knows their spirit is willing, as Peter and the disciples declared just moments ago, but he knows their flesh is very weak. And we are so much like them. So often our spirit is willing, isn't it? We want more of Jesus in our lives. And so our spirit's very willing. We want more of Jesus in our lives. We want more time in prayer. We want more fellowship, more reading of our Bible, more courage to share the gospel, more energy to love and serve others. Ah, oh, but our flesh is so, so weak. <laughs> so, so weak. And God knows that. And so we, like them, we need to watch and pray and be diligent in our walk with God. Be on the alert, Jesus was telling them. Watch and pray. <coughs> in these verses, we also see the depth of the struggle in Jesus' soul. Look at the words he uses here. All things are possible for you, Father. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so he says, his soul is in sorrow to the point of death. I don't think any of us have ever felt like that. I mean, he doesn't exaggerate things. Jesus is, uses a very exact terms. He, he's not exaggerating things to make a point here. So he's literally feeling close to physical death. 
and the weight of sorrow on his soul at this point. So much so that he cries out to God the Father and says, God, all things are possible for you, Father. Remove this cup from me. So you see the humanity even of Jesus crying out now. Is if, there, if there's any other way, God, please, if there's any other way, make it so. If there's any other way, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And don't we cry out like this to God too? We also struggle greatly in this life, and we cry out to God for deliverance from our sufferings. Jesus cries out, remove this cup from me, this cup of the full wrath of God and judgment of the sins of the world. This is what Jesus cries out to be removed from him. Oftentimes the, the word cup is referred to the wrath of God. His full cup of wrath will be poured out. We read that often throughout the scriptures. And in, th in this moment, we know from Luke that an angel from heaven was there to strengthen him. And in this moment, and it's in this moment that in this anguish that Jesus is experience, experiencing, his sweat became thick like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. We read that in Luke. The author of Hebrews writes this, and it, it gives some light as to, you know, why this struggle? Why, why all this agony? Hebrews chapter 5, we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so it was the will of the Father to slay him, and so Jesus submitted himself to that will and that plan. And he did it for you and for me, for all who would believe in him, that we would not perish but have everlasting life. That's why he did it. And he did it with joy. We also read in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so he did it with joy. Even through all of the agony and the suffering and the shame and the abandonment, through all of these things, he joyfully endured the cross so that by faith in him we can live for the glory of God the Father. And so here we see how Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. You read through the Old Testament scriptures, you see over and over again, it's like uh, Groundhog Day, and over and over again, you know, here we go, you know, Israel's given a command, they fail, they're judged, they repent, and they repeat the cycle. They fail over and over again. And so we also fail over and over again, but we see here how Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. In times of trial and testing, Israel grumbles, complains, and curses God and his prophets. Jesus, in his time of trial and testing, 
submits himself in obedience to the will of the Father. He is faithful where Israel is faithless. He succeeds where Israel fails. He is the prophet greater than Moses to come and save them from their sins. Look at verses 41 and 42. <clears throat> so we see the prayer time is short. <coughs> he returns, finds them all sleeping. Multiple times, actually, he returns, finds them all sleeping. After just a little while, Jesus could see the approaching crowd. And so he wakes his disciples up. He says, get up, let's get going. My betrayer is at hand. Now, I wonder, like, where is he going? Is he going as far away as possible from the approaching crowd? Is he trying to run away? No, he's not trying to run away. He's not fleeing. No, he's doing the very opposite. He goes right to the danger. He's not running from the danger. He's running to it. Right to it. He's going forward to meet those who have come to arrest him, including Judas. He goes right to the danger, and he is ready for the cross. The suffering, the agony of soul, that season has passed, and now he's ready for the cross. And Jesus went joyfully to that cross and took the full wrath of God for your sin and for mine. Will you trust him by faith and be saved from your sins today? Some of you young people in here, you know, you, you come to church, you hear the messages because mom and dad make you. You're here because mom and dad are here. And I pray to God you have faith of your own, that you won't just have mommy and daddy's faith, because that won't save you. I pray you have faith of your own, so that in times like this where Jesus was tested and his disciples were tested, you will not fall away. You will have faith and you'll stay true, and you'll believe and stand firm in your faith in Jesus Christ. And some of you today, you haven't trusted in Jesus. You're here just because someone brought you. I pray today you would trust in him. Believe in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal everlasting life. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the gospel message Jesus came preaching as he ushered in the kingdom of God. So trust him by faith and be saved from your sins today. And for those of us who have trusted in him, be encouraged in your souls today. Be encouraged in your souls today. We can see from this text that Jesus knows our needs. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows all these things. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. He's promised that. He loves each, and one, each one of us. He loves you and he loves me in spite of all of these weaknesses. He could have easily cursed Peter right at that point, couldn't he? I mean, he knew it all, right? You're going to deny me three times, Peter, and you know what? Because you deny me, I'm going to deny you, and it's over, Peter. That could have been a response. But that's not the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, is it? 
And we deserve that kind of response. I deserve that kind of response for my unfaithfulness. And that's not the way Jesus operates. Like, you're going to deny me, Peter, but, you know, when you've come, when you've returned, you know, strengthen your brothers also. And I'm praying for you, Peter. I'm praying that you'll be strong. That's the Lord that we, that we love and worship. Kind and compassionate and loving. So he loves us in spite of our weaknesses. And he is most strong in us in our weaknesses. The Apostle Paul writes about that. Apostle Paul writes, I boast in my weaknesses. So for those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, know that you know, he loves us and he loves us in spite of all of our flaws and weaknesses. We can trust him today with our struggles, and every one of us struggles in some way. Every one of us. That's the thing that I love, you know, about the genuine church of God is, you know, we, we share our struggles with each other. This isn't just the Sunshine Happiness Club. Life is a struggle. Life is hard. And we share our joys together, and we share our sorrows and struggles together. And we need to do that. We need to do that. It makes us stronger in our faith in the Lord, and stronger in our fellowship with each other. And so trust and know that he is most strong in our weaknesses. And those times when you feel like you're walking alone, know that's the time when he's actually carrying you. <coughs> know that. Know that our Lord hears the cry of the broken. And I think this, this verse in Hebrews 4 sums up what we've read so far and what we're about to see in the, in the coming finish of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Remember that. So, therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we don't have a, a Savior who doesn't understand our struggles. And we can see even in our text today, he struggled. He knows our struggles. And he loves us. And so in our times of struggle, let's, with confidence, as Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace. It's not the, the throne of being whipped. <laughs> it's the throne of grace. Let's draw near to that throne of grace, and let's cry out to Jesus. And we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.